Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's Friday the 23rd of October. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined as usual by my colleague Ben Worthy. The aim of this podcast is to explore issues in the news that are of relevance to students of British politics, particularly those taking our undergraduate module Contemporary British Politics. So as usual we have two issues that we think are of particular interest in this week's news and I hand over to Ben to introduce the first topic. Okay, uh, we begin by discussing what seems to be the rather um, boring issue of statutory instruments that have suddenly come into the headlines alongside another institution that's rarely discussed, which is the House of Lords. Um, This week, there was controversy over uh, tax credits and cuts to tax credits carried out by George Osborne, and this almost turned into a full-blown constitutional crisis when it seemed like the House of Lords was going to try and stop this happening. And in response, the government threatened to um, reform the House of Lords. So, uh, just taking a step backwards, what is a statutory instrument, this thing that's caused so much trouble? Well, a statutory instrument is a piece of secondary legislation, or what's called delegated legislation. And uh, to think about it simply, you have a huge complex law And then these statutory instruments allow you to fill in the detail at a later date. Um, And what's interesting was the changes to tax credits was going to come through as this piece of secondary filling in the detail law. And here the House of Lords actually has the power to stop it if it wishes. And it seemed at the middle of this week that the House of Lords, a a crossbench peer, Baroness Meacher, was actually going to... um, put down what is called, wonderfully, a fatal motion to stop this statutory instrument. And this caused all sorts of trouble and ructions. There was discussion about reforming the House of Lords, about its right to do this sort of thing, and then the fatal motion was withdrawn. So, um, almost a crisis in British politics in a single week. So, I guess my reaction to this is, you know, a kind of desire to reach back into the history books to understand... How on earth the House of Lords still has a power like this? Because I guess my route into this is very simplistic. I think about the Parliament Acts and I think about the fact that the House of Lords has an opportunity to delay legislation but not to veto it. I think of money bills as being sacrosanct for the House of Commons that the House of Lords can't go anywhere near them. But what we learned this week is that that is a false representation of the House of Lords in a way and that on this secondary legislation which is kind of, as I understand it, kind of changes to existing legislation rather than the introduction of a new bill into Parliament, the House of Lords has considerable power. It's also surprising when you look back into recent history where you've had the Conservative leader um, in the House of Lords, Tom Strathclyde, saying that I declare this convention, this convention of fatal motions, to be dead. So this seemed to have been a kind of institutional hangover from days when the House of Lords had power, and it's something that has been used occasionally but rather sparingly in the past and yet it makes a return now. Is this just a kind of institutional um, oddity that we just see from time to time or is it a sign of more lasting and permanent tensions in the relationship between the House of Commons and House of Lords? I think it's uh, part of the growing tension between the two houses Um, and here we pay tribute to the work of uh, Meg Russell, who published an extraordinarily interesting book on the House of Lords in 2013. Um, 
since Tony Blair got rid of the hereditary peers, the House of Lords has been feeling more legitimate and more powerful. It's not democratically elected, of course, but it is feeling less undemocratic in certain ways. And it's chosen to assert its power increasingly. And the interesting thing is the House of Lords technically still has quite a lot of power. It just chooses not to use it very often because it's not elected. So the puzzle for me is why it chooses to use its power on this particular issue. And if you look at back at, at instances, and comparatively few where there were successful fatal motions, they were on, I mean, relatively low-profile areas of public policy compared to what we saw this week. Um, legislation dealing with gambling, dealing with um, um, uh, devolution in London and issues like this. What's particularly interesting is why it chose to exercise its powers in this particular area, which is broadly speaking economic policy at this particular time. And I guess my reaction too was to look for legitimacy. These tax credits and the phasing out of them are very unpopular. I mean, we saw this uh, during the week. There's been uh, reports published by the Institute of Fiscal Studies that say there will be clear losers from this policy um, as, uh, as these tax credits are, are reformed. And there's a sense perhaps in which the House of Lords is trying to capture the public mood on this. Um, and so I find, that, I find that idea of the House of Lords feeling more legitimate and looking for, its le- looking for legitimacy by focusing on this issue particularly interesting. I also looked at Meg Russell's work on this, which is informative as always. And yet, if you look back to her 2013 book, she says that this power is used sparingly and it tends to be used for certain types of issue civil liberties, for example, or questions of good governance. So this was a a controversial case for her research because it was much more um, to do with economic policy of the kind that we wouldn't expect a fatal motion to be used in relation to. So um, I guess the backdrop for this is something like um, there's a kind of sense of anti-austerity politics, perhaps, uh, hanging over the country as a whole, and the House of Lords is reflecting this. Meg Russell wrote a really interesting blog post for the UCL Constitution Unit during the week in which he kind of reflected upon this. And um, I think the most interesting element of, of, of what she had to say about this was how there was what she called a worrying show of constitutional illiteracy going on in the idea that the House of Commons could somehow suspend the House of Lords. And... Um, this is very interesting for me. And her conclusion, at least as I understood it, was that um, there's not really a constitutional crisis here at all. The House of Lords has these powers, but it could have those powers challenged pretty easily, she argues, by the House of Commons. They could change the Parliament Acts or whatever the relevant legislation is to try and take away this power over these statutory instruments. And for her, the fact that they haven't suggests that they don't want to. So I guess in political science terms, I would see this as a case of rational choice institutionalism. In other words, this mechanism or these these institutions that we see in place, which give the House of Lords these powers, uh, serve the interests of those in power, or at least don't contradict them too blatantly, so they remain in place. And she argues that if we are really going to see concerns here over the House of Lords' powers here, the House of Commons will just shoot back and take those powers away. I mean, what are your thoughts on the on the possibility of constitutional reform here, Ben? Well, I think firstly you you, um, you pick up a, a very uh, entertaining point, which is the idea that the uh, government and the House of Commons can, in inverted commas, suspend the House of Lords whenever it chooses. 
um, which is a pretty amazing thing, which which got quite a lot of press coverage, I think, on Tuesday. Um, I think what is also interesting is the question, like you say, of why has this not been changed? And what we've seen over the past 20 years, well, since 1999, is really this drift where lots of the conventions the House of Lords was supposed to be obeying they don't oppose anything in a manifesto, couldn't the Sal- Salisbury Convention. They don't oppose anything in a finance bill after the 1909 crisis. Um, these have kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit, or at least they've got a little bit questionable. The Human Rights Act, Lord Falconer recently said, would also be opposed at the House of Lords, despite being a manifesto pledge, because it was a civil liberties issue. So on the one hand, we're finding lots of the conventions that made the House of Lords what it was, and less of a check, kind of drifting slightly and weakening. Um, I did love the idea that the uh, government could just simply reform the House of Lords, because this is what governments have been trying to do since 1911, and none of them have succeeded because there's no consensus to do it. So the idea that in a fit of rage the government could just reform the House of Lords again um, is again a complete misnomer, and it's all kind of all smoke and no fire there, because the government can't actually reform the House of Lords without a huge amount of effort, like David Cameron said the last time they tried um, I suppose underneath this, this is another issue uh, which Meg Russell addressed and um, where there's a rather insp- interesting conspiracy theory developing, which is the idea that the House of Lords is gradually being packed with lots and lots and too many peers and it seeks to being undermined by the very presence of too many people from different uh, walks of life. But the numbers I saw, I, I guess from that Meg Russell post, is that if David Cameron really wanted to flood the House of Lords, it would have to reach a thousand people. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, there's historical echoes here of FDR packing the Supreme Court. And um, that's a possibility. But it sounds like Cameron won't go down that route because it's too blatant. Um, and uh, my sense of this is that this is, a, is an indication of things to come, that these fatal motions will be used in a way that they haven't been in the past, that we'll see a broader application of these um, this kind of um, sense of the House of Lords' sense of its own role that's clearly going beyond civil liberties. But that's going to bring these issues to a head because it's basically claiming legitimacy for a body that has limited legitimacy, at least in terms of um, um, views of legitimacy associated with democratic accountability. It may have authority, it may have historical tradition, it may embody certain values, but it's missing the most obvious ingredient for a democratic uh, institution, particularly one in a parliament, which is the right to be democratically elected. That's unlikely ever to happen under Westminster. If you go back to the Westminster model, if you go back to um, Leipzig's conception of the Westminster model, uh, having a single chamber is a classic uh, characteristic of a Westminster model. They're very unlikely in a Westminster system to give power to a second elected chamber. And um, in, in this sense, I see this area as being ripe for reform, but it's it's going to be a very, very tricky one. I see this as, as, as an instance of, of historical institutionalism as well, in the sense that you see these norms and conventions, non-binding in some cases, binding in others, but they all serve as a drag on what policymakers can do uh, to this day. I think it's probably not so easy to reform these things. And I think this also goes back to one of the themes of our discussions over the week, weeks that basically um, Britain doesn't do constitutional reform willingly or easily mm. in the absence of mechanisms for constitutional change. We see this in relation to the European Union. We see this in relation to Scotland. We see a certain kind of constitutional riffing going on in moments like this. We don't really have a template for doing 
constitutional reform in this country. Contrast this somewhere with somewhere like Ireland, which is addicted to f- reforming its own constitution. <laughs> it's having referendums all the time. It's having conven- you know, citizens' con- uh, constitutional conventions. It's constantly trying to um, overhaul and some would say update its own constitution. It couldn't be more different than its n- nearest neighbour, the UK. Okay, so that brings us to the second topic of the week, which is another unelected institution seeking legitimacy, perhaps that's a way to look at it. That is the Bank of England's report on the UK's membership of the European Union, which was accompanied by a very high-profile speech from Governor Mark Carney uh, at the University of Oxford, which set out in a very circumscribed and kind of modest way, as he saw it, um, what the EU means and doesn't mean for the bank's ability to fulfil its mandate. This was an interesting report and a very fascinating speech that generated a lot of headlines. The Bank of England, as I saw it, went almost as far as it could as an independent institution in making the case for continued UK membership of the European Union. The argument that came out from the speech and the report is that the UK is unequivocally better off economically by being a member of the European Union. Of course, they had to watch their words carefully in the report and the speech, but they argued that the UK was clearly more open and dynamic and that it was achieving higher sustainable rates of economic growth as a result of being a member of the European Union. There were some concerns raised that this openness and dynamism came at a cost, as they would always do in economic arrangements, the cost being that the UK finds itself very close to the euro area economically and very vulnerable when the euro area is um, um, facing tough economic times, as it has been since the global financial crisis. And there was a word of warning issued about the future direction of financial regulation. But these were relatively soft riders to a conclusion that spoke loud and clear about how the bank saw EU membership as ultimately beneficial. What was your reaction to the speech, Ben? Well, I did like the fact that it was trailed as being a boring speech that was not in any way political, as if you can make a speech about the membership of the EU and it not be political in a country with a a referendum coming um, on the membership of the EU. Um, I think I I tried to read it without reading any of the newspaper coverage first, because I think that's a good way to read political speeches, because newspapers report what they think you want to read about rather than the speech itself. Um, and of course, there's this kind of three different factors that he looked at, where two of them got a tick and one of them got a cross, which would seem to be a, a reasonably pro-EU uh, conclusion. And I thought the, the, the actual final part of the speech was, was shockingly uh, partial in the sense that it, there was a wonderful bit about Christopher Wren's cathedral and the hidden foundations and then this very obvious link to the... Uh, to the European Union. So I did like the fact that it was pretended to be apolitical about something that was obviously very political and came down profoundly in favour, in my opinion, of being part of the European Union with the qualifications that, you know, well, it should be, you know, it, it can be difficult, it does need changing. For me, it was kind of reminiscent of that Monty Python sketch, but what have the Romans ever done for us? It was a very long and dry answer to that question, as applied to the case of the European Union. In Carney's view, the answer is a hell of a lot. And I thought the most powerful line of the speech was basically saying that the UK, perhaps more than any other country, has benefited from uh, the four freedoms um, inherent in, in the Treaty of Rome. But for me, the question really was, why was the governor giving this speech to begin with? And he has some form here, of course. He waded into the debate over Scottish independence mm. 
talking about the possibility of a sterling zone between an independent Scotland and the rest of the UK, arguing that that was very problematic and that Scotland could not feasibly sign up to a monetary union with the rest of the UK um, without ceding some sovereignty. And that dealt a huge blow, I think, to the independence movement in Scotland, basically saying that they would have to have the courage of their economic convictions in relation to independence by choosing to have uh, their own independent currency. Um, So there was a, a sense in which he was perhaps replicating um, that role of the speaker of, of, of harsh truths about economics. But there was something else going on in this speech for me. Um, Mark Kearney's been given some, some curious speeches of late. He gave a speech on climate change and the implications for financial stability. And for me, there was a little bit of kind of jumping the shark going on. The central banker who seems to want to wade into all these very curious political debates that go well beyond his original mandate. Um, so I was trying to understand what was really going on here in terms of the choice of subject. And I think one way to read this is that central banking has become uh, more complex um, since the financial crisis hit because the traditional instrument of monetary policy, interest rates, are basically stuck at zero. And so there is very little scope really for the Bank of England and other central bankers around the world to talk about what they traditionally talk about, which is, Where's inflation at? Should we have a change of interest rate? Monetary policy is stuck in, in, in this low gear. And perhaps that's one explanation for why we see Carney reaching out and talking about these other topics. But I don't think it's just about a choice from the Bank of England in thinking about it further. I think there's a sense in which, in this context, new roles are being loaded onto the Bank of England and other um, uh, central banks around the world. The Bank of England is now a powerful financial regulator and supervisor in the way that it hasn't been um, for a number of years, thanks to new powers being transferred to the bank, or perhaps more accurately, transferred back to the bank. And certainly the speech on climate change seems to have come out of that context, Mm. where the G20, the group of 20 um, um, systemically important economies around the world, asked central bankers indirectly to think about the relationship between financial risk and climate change. A bit of a wheeze really getting them to think about a new angle on climate change. And it was in that context that, that uh, Mark Carney earlier in the year gave his speech on climate change. But um, all of this is very curious for me. You have central banks speaking about and, and, and engaged in policies that they traditionally wouldn't have uh, um, been involved in. Very interesting. So if we list the speeches, he's been speaking about climate change, probably one of the most contentious political issues, and important political issues there is. He's been speaking about the European Union, uh, and he's been also taking particular views about Jeremy Corbyn's economic policy and his people's quantitative easing, which he um, disparaged. Uh, so what we see is actually, and maybe just to the theme of both of the issues that we've talked about, two supposedly reasonably apolitical uh, parts of the British political system appearing in some senses to behave in a more political way and to be trying to set the agenda and various issues. Okay, thanks Ben. Thanks for listening. Please stay tuned for more Westminster Watch.